It's brutal, it's ugly, and it's dirty. It's two men fighting. One is trying to kill one, and the other one's trying to stay alive. And it's a fight for your life. And never in my wildest dreams did I think that it was going to be, I was going to face something like that. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. The podcast that makes your law enforcement dreams happen. Welcome to the Go Law Enforcement Podcast, brought to you by GoLawEnforcement.com. I'm your host, Joe Lebowski. If you're looking for a job in law enforcement, GoLawEnforcement.com has the largest listing of law enforcement job openings. To help you get that law enforcement job, we put together a special guide for you. Seven inside tips to get a law enforcement job fast. You can get the guide for free just by going to jobtipsnow.com. That's jobtipsnow.com. On an October evening, Miami-Dade police officer Mario Gutierrez observed an individual attempting to set off a massive explosion by setting fire to the underground fuel tanks at a gas station next to Miami International Airport. The actions by Officer Gutierrez that night earned him the Public Safety Officer Medal of Valor from the President of the United States. Officer Gutierrez, thank you for being on the Go Law Enforcement Podcast. Thank you, sir. Thank you for inviting me. And you're a police officer with Miami-Dade Police Department in Florida. That's correct, sir. And how did you get into law enforcement? I got into it, um, I guess, when I was 32 years old. So I got into it a little later in, in my life than some of the other guys that would come in in, in their 20s. Um, I always wanted to be a police officer. And um, when my opportunity came up, as soon as I became a U.S. citizen, because I was Cuban-born, but I was raised here. And uh, as soon as I got my certificate, I walked out of the, uh, the office there where I got it, and I went over to the police department and I applied within minutes. Did you start off your career with Miami-Dade? Yes, the only department that I applied was with Miami-Dade County. It was the only department that I felt was um, at the top of their game, and I wanted to be a part of that. Was there any special education or training that kind of prepared you for getting into the department or for being a police officer? Not for me. I, um, I was, I'm a high school graduate. Um, but police work has always been something that I wanted to do. I had teachers in school that, that were reserve officers, and I always admired them. So um, when my opportunity came, I, I took it, and I'm glad when they picked me. Can you describe what you do in your role as, as police officer with Miami-Dade? Yes, I, um, I'm currently uh, I'm a road patrolman, and I'm assigned to the Miami International Airport. And my job there is inside the terminal where I, um, I help the people um, facilitate whenever they have questions. I try to help them out. And also handling any type of police-related calls that occur at the airport, I respond to them and I handle them. Can we go back to October of, of 2013? Was that day pretty much like any other? Yes. Uh, at that time, I was assigned to the airport motorcycle unit. So my job at uh, that time 
um, was to enforce traffic laws around the airport. And I was uh, at that corner of uh, Northwest 42nd Avenue, which is the avenue that runs um, on the east side of the airport, just adjacent to it. And there's a, on the 25th Street, there's, on the corner there, there's a Shell gas station. I, I was backed in there basically watching the intersection because that intersection at that time was a very dangerous intersection. So I was basically enforcing the traffic laws there. How close to the airport is that location? Um, it's right across the street. You basically have the road, the uh, 42nd Avenue, then you have a canal, and then you have the fence line to the airport. And particularly on the other side of that fence, across from the gas station, the American Airlines has their fuel farm there where all their, all their um, pumps and stuff and their trucks, they're all parked there. And what type of vehicle were you driving that day? That night, I was driving a, um, a Dodge Charger that was assigned to me. And I, I usually got off the bike when night came down, when night fell, because of um, it's more dangerous being on the bike at night. So it was easier to be in the car. And that's what I did. I took the car and I was positioned there to watch the intersection that night. Did anything unusual catch your eye that night? Yeah. Um, what happened at that moment um, when the incident started, I was actually on the phone, on my cell phone having a conversation with my wife. And I was a bit distracted in the conversation with her. And there was vehicles blocking my view where this individual was doing the crime he was doing. Um, they were blocking my view because they were at the gas pump. So I really didn't see anything out of the ordinary until I saw smoke. That's when it alerted me that something was definitely wrong. So you're, you're sitting in your squad, you see the smoke. What did you do? I threw the, the phone on the floor of the car and I immediately put the car in drive and I moved forward as quickly as possible to the front of the gas station, put it in park. I exited the, the patrol car and I ran up to the, um, the emergency shutoff button that's outside every single gas station in this country. So I have to believe that was the focus of your attention. Did it then change back to what was going on with the smoke? Yes, because if I figured if I shut down the pumps, then it'll avoid any kind of fuel spill. I also saw the individual, Dominic Jean, grabbed a hose from one of the pumps and extend it, trying to add fuel to the fire he, he had started inside the, um, the valve system that's underground at the gas station. He had lifted the lid to access the valve system, and now he was trying to pour gasoline on the fire he had started. And that's what I saw. And so was there still smoke coming out of that, that area? Yes, there was still smoke. I was processing the, um, the the whole picture that I was seeing. I'm processing that very quickly, trying to determine what I'm going to do. And and I um, I actually hesitated for like half a second because I was scared. It, it really scared me because I, I said, we're going to blow up and we're all going to die. And then I had to do what I had to do because it was in front of me. And I needed to take care of the situation. There was nobody else to do it. It was on me. I had to deal with it. Was there a split second that you were thinking, what the heck is he doing? Yes, I was like initially shocked. I mean, because this is something that's not common and not ordinary. I mean, not only is he going to blow this place up, but he's going to kill himself 
and everybody else around him. So I'm processing this, and it's shocking. I mean, I, I admit it was something that it was like surreal. You obviously made a decision. You could either get in your squad, drive as fast as you can, or you can try and stop the threat. Yes, I um, I made this the decision, the split second decision. I focused on the subject's hands, and he had nothing in his hands at that moment. So he also had a backpack, but I never saw the backpack because my focus was so intent on his hands. So I chose to use my taser. My my plan was to incapacitate him, take him into custody, uh, put him in my squad car, and get fire out there to put out this fire and try to start evacuating people. That was my plan. When you turned your attention to him after shutting the emergency shutoff, how far away from you was he at that time? Uh, I would estimate about 25, maybe 30 feet. And you ran towards him? Yes, I, I ran. And as I was running, I drew my taser. And then I did something which I call it muscle memory. Under high stress, which I was under at that moment, as I drew the taser, I actually removed the cartridge from the front of the taser. Because when I go home every night, I always remove my taser out of my gun belt and I take the cartridge off and I separate both pieces and I put it on a shelf. And I do this every night out of habit. So under high stress, I did the same thing. I actually removed the taser cartridge, extended the taser and fired it and nothing happened. All I did was arc. There was no darts flying out. So when I realized what I had done, I turned the taser off, reattached the cartridge, and then and turned it back on and then fired it. But at this point in time, the individual who was crouched had stood up and started to blade his body towards the right, and he got a partial taser hit, and it was ineffective. So in your mind, you're thinking, what are my options? What did you do next? Well, at that moment that he got the partial taser hit, it was very, very quick. It was uh, almost instantaneous. He, um, he charged me, producing a, a large nine-inch serrated knife and a uh, large uh, flat-tip screwdriver. And as he charged me, I brought up my right arm to, to block the initial attack, and I took a very large slash into my right tricep, which went all the way down into the bone. And I didn't feel anything. I, I, was, I was just trying to block the hit but I was trying to back up from him and under high stress, you lose your fine motor skills and backing up. That's a fine motor skill thing. So as I backed up, I fell. I remember falling and I remember my training because in the Academy, we practiced numerous backfalls and how to break your fall. So I did what I was trained to do. I broke my fall and my legs came up to protect myself and to protect my gun but as I kicked him, he actually flanked me to the left and I missed, which gave him the opportunity to um, jump on top of me. And as he jumped on top of me, uh, he lost his weapons. One of them went scurrying away from him, which was the knife. But I wasn't aware of that. I was just trying to keep my gun in the holster as I'm trained to do and protect it so he can't get it, which he was trying to do. And as he was tugging, and I'm trying to pound with my left hand, pound him off of it. He actually bent down and he bit my right thumb, nearly taking it off. And, but again, I felt no pain. So you're using your right hand to protect your weapon. You're using your left hand to defend yourself. 
what was he doing after he bit your thumb? He was still uh, trying to um, to tug on my holster. I'm now remember I'm on my back, and I've already taken numerous uh, hits by his weapon. And he's actually trying to pull my holster off my gun belt, and he actually moves it. Even though I wear keepers, he actually moves it. And um, now I what I do is I flip over, I flip over, and um, still protecting my weapon. And he picks up the screwdriver that he dropped and he starts stabbing me numerous times above my, um, my chest and my back. And I crawl forward with him on my back, still stabbing me. And I grab the knife that he, he had released and I take that knife and I stab him two times with his own knife. So he's got the screwdriver, you got the knife. Correct. And I stab him with his own knife and I put two stab wounds into him. Did that seem to slow him down? Not at all. At this whole point in time, I felt no pain. I was very scared that I was going to get hit in either my lungs, my heart, or my liver, and I was going to get killed. So that scared me. And then at that particular moment when I stabbed him, he was actually still attacking me with the screwdriver. I remember a thought that crossed my mind at that moment, which it was my family. I actually thought in the middle of that fight, I thought of my family and it made me extremely, extremely angry. I've never been so angry in my life that this man was going to take my life and take me away from my family. So I was determined that I was not going to lose this fight. And what I did was I flipped over again on my back and this time I brought my legs up and I kicked him squarely in the chest and he fell back, which gave me the second that I needed to be able to draw my weapon. And as soon as I drew my weapon, he lunged at me again. He actually picked up the knife that I dropped, and he lunged at me with the screwdriver and the knife, and I fired two quick rounds at him, which hit him. And as soon as I hit him, he actually landed on me. I'm on my back, and he's on top of me. And I take my gun, and I put it to the nape of his neck, right on his uh, right part of his neck, and I fired three more rounds into his torso, which in that area, as I'm firing, I knew that I had about six inches of distance to his heart, I was able to stop the fight. And did your focus now change to, I've got to survive all these stab wounds? Yes. What I did was I rolled out from under him. I knew he was done. What I did was I crawled forward. I had lost my radio in the fight. I was exhausted. I was scared that I was bleeding to death. So I picked up my radio and I quickly looked at my thumb. I can see the, the thumb was filleted open. So what I did was I put the flap of skin back over my knuckle of the thumb, and then I pressed it against my chest to apply pressure. And I did a quick look and see if I had any bubbles or anything like that from my lungs or any dark blood from my liver. I didn't see anything like that. So I was still breathing. I was still conscious. So I got on the radio. Now, I had in the fight, I was wearing glasses at the time. And I lost my glasses in the fight. So without my glasses... My vision is a little blurry, and I can't read the small print on the radio, so I couldn't tell what channel I was on. So when I transmitted, um, nobody heard me because I was on a TAC channel that wasn't monitored. So I don't hear anything back. So I must have transmitted several times, um, and nobody could hear me. So I actually looked towards my police car. I thought, I'm going to have to get myself up, and I'm going to have to get in the car. And I'm going to have to drive myself to the hospital because there's nobody going to help me. And it was very desperate for me. 
So then I remembered the red button that's on the radio with the emergency button. And I hit that and I transmitted again. And at this point, when I did that, the, the, we have different frequencies and different dispatchers. At that particular time, when I did that, my radio call, my radio signal came up on the headquarters dispatcher. When she saw it, she immediately transferred me over to the airport dispatcher, who right away knew I was in trouble, and she put out what we have, what we call a 315, which is officer needs assistance in an emergency mode. The following is the actual radio traffic from that night. Officer Gutierrez is Motor 81. Motor 81? Motor 81. Motor 81, you on with a priority? Attention all units, 315-42, Northwest 25. Any units to respond? So as soon as she put that out, um, east of me, a block east of me, were two officers having a, a coffee break. And they, one of them was a motorman in my unit. And he and his partner that was there responded right away. Motor 82, I'll be arriving shortly. And there's a little side story there. Seven years earlier, when I got to the airport, this officer named Juan Leon, the one that responded to me there, Juan, I was in casual conversation with him. And I had told him, I said, Juan, I'm on a prescribed blood thinner by a doctor. If anything ever happens to me, don't wait for rescue. Just put me in a police car and take me to the hospital. That was seven years earlier. So when Juan arrived on the scene and he saw me bleeding, he immediately knew what to do. He picked me up. He put me in the patrol car. Officer Juan Leon is Motor 82. Motor 82, I got the officer in my vehicle. I'm going to run to trauma. Which way? Which route you taking? Which route you taking? We clear the way. And he drove me to the hospital and he saved my life. Attention, special attention, Miami Control Point 1. We have an officer down in route stable 112 to a trauma. Subject is down. Subject is down. 3106, the subject is down. The officer is being taken. I just need responding units to make sure we close off the BP. This tank is still smoldering where the gas canister is. Everybody back to 7120. Have everybody back off. How many times had you been stabbed by the suspect? I was stabbed 12 times, and um, I was stabbed in the upper chest, the, uh, the stomach area, my arm, my right tricep was slashed open, my thumb was bitten, and I also had a, a stab wound in my left leg in the upper part of it near my femoral. The surveillance tapes of that evening from the gas station, what really steps out about that is just how quickly everything unfolded with the suspect and just how quickly... The fight escalated. Yes, it was a very brutal, very um, rough, and, and it's it's not choreographed. It's nothing like in the movies. It's brutal, it's ugly, and it's dirty. It's two men fighting. One is trying to kill one, and the other one's trying to stay alive. And it's a fight for your life. And never in my wildest dreams did I think that it was going to be, I was going to face something like that. I mean, at that moment, it happened so fast, nobody knew where I was. There was no help coming. I had to deal with it myself. I had to take on that burden. I had to face it, and I had to settle it. And and I did everything I could based on my training to stay alive and to end it. And everything worked. Everything fell in place, and, and I was able to survive it. 
Did it ever come out what the motivation was of the suspect, what was going on with him to cause him to do this? No, all I know is what I was told by the, by our homicide team. All I know is that this individual had murdered somebody before in California, which he was arrested for, and he was deemed unfit to stand trial because he wasn't, I guess he wasn't sane. So they put him in some kind of institution, which eventually they let him out. And he has an extensive, extensive criminal, violent criminal past. But I do know that well, at least one murder that he did commit, he tried to commit another one before he attacked me several months before in uh, Bayside, downtown Miami. Apparently, he stabbed some victim in the neck, which that person survived. And again, he was arrested, but nobody showed up to the court, so they released him. And eventually, a few months later, he ended up at the airport where I had to deal with him. So he was a very violent individual. In 2016, you received the Public Safety Medal of Valor at the White House from President Obama. What was that experience like? That was quite an amazing experience. As a kid growing up, when you're in school and you read about the White House, yeah, okay, the White House, the president's house, and many presidents live there. But to actually go and walk inside, be invited, and actually be inside, and look at all the things inside the White House, and my wife and I were in there, and it was like surreal. It was like, man, we're actually here. Look at all the paintings of the presidents. You know, you see those in books, and here we are. We're looking at them. And we're actually getting photographed in front of them. And it's, it was a, an amazing thing, and it was like we were in awe. And it was like, what an honor. What an honor to be inside that house. It was amazing. You have been through a lot. What career advice would you have for somebody going into law enforcement or considering law enforcement as a career? You have to have a passion for it. You have to um, you have to have a heart, what I call a cop's heart. You have to have that desire to help people and to serve, because that's the main thing an officer does is he serves his community. As an officer, we're all members of the community that we live in, but we take on that burden and we choose to stand between what's evil and what's good. And we do it willingly, and some of us lose our lives. Officer Gutierrez, it's been an honor to have you on the Go Law Enforcement Podcast. Sir, it's an honor for me to be on it, and thank you very much for inviting me. If you're looking for a job in law enforcement, check out the largest listing of law enforcement jobs on golawenforcement.com. The requirements to be a police officer are different for every state. To find out if you meet the requirements to be a police officer in your state, Take a short three-question quiz by going to golawenforcement.com forward slash quiz. That's golawenforcement.com forward slash quiz. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.